0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 28, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, a look back at the race for the BRCA1 gene 20 years later, and a roundup from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The so-called race for the BRCA1 gene ended with a publication in Science by a group from Myriad Genetics. Myriad went on to secure a patent for the gene and closely control its use in research and testing for the next two decades, until the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the patent in 2013. In a special section marking the 20th anniversary of the BRCA1 race, we bring together news and perspectives on the impact of the gene on our understanding and treatment of breast cancer. I spoke with Mary-Claire King, who provided a historical perspective on the players, the stakes, and the long-term outcomes in the race.
1: I became interested in the possibility that the clear family clustering of breast cancer at young ages in some families might be due to inherited predisposition, as opposed to shared environmental exposures, for example. I came from working in evolution and (laughs) thought if If we can solve differences between humans and chimpanzees going back 5 million years, we should be able to solve differences between one sister who develops breast cancer and another who does not. So back in the mid-1970s, I set out to do this using, at first, mathematical principles because that's what we had. And then as time went on and tools of molecular biology became available, I began to use an approach called linkage analysis. And it took me 17 years to demonstrate to my own satisfaction and consequently to everybody else's pretty soon thereafter that there was a gene predisposing to breast cancer that was responsible for that breast cancer in a subset of families and that that gene had a physical locale on chromosome 17Q. Once that demonstration was out there, that was the beginning of what
0: the press baptized the race. And so was it all competition, or were some of these people collaborating?
1: Oh, there were certainly collaborations, formal collaborations. For example, uh, my lab and Francis Collins' lab collaborated very closely, and we were back and forth on the the phone and by fax. This was pre-email, of course, many, many times a day, hourly. And then other groups with which we were nominally in competition, like the group that involved Gilbert Lenoir, they had their own collaborations, and although we were formally in competition with them, certainly you know, we would chat, we would exchange some information and hints and clues and thoughts and so on. Insofar as I know, the group that involved Myriad was quite apart and did not become involved in any of the cooperation across any other groups. Certainly not with us, and if they did with others, I'm not aware of it.
0: So, what was the finish
1: line for the race? I think the press, I think they considered the finish line the cloning of the gene in 1994 by Myriad. That wasn't what I considered the finish line, but fair enough. It became a very different sort of story after that.
0: So was Myriad's patent of this gene a consequence of their finishing the race? Yes. And so that meant that they were able to control the use of it in genetic testing for a very long time.
1: Right. It was very interesting. And this is, I think, a part of the history of this period that it's complex. No one, as far as I know, certainly not I, no one in the public sector anticipated this degree of total monopolistic control Mm -hmm. on a sequence. Genes had been patented before. Francis Collins and Lap-Chee Choi and their institutions shared a patent on the cystic fibrosis gene. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were other genes that had been patented, but the capacity to use those genes had been licensed in a non-exclusive way by their institutions. To be honest, it never crossed my mind that a patent would be used with exclusive licensing in the fashion that Myriad employed. I am not sure that it crossed the mind of the NIH either we need to put ourselves into the historic moment. Recall that it had been not very long before, maybe a year or so before this, that there had been the effort by Craig Venter to patent every gene for which he had an EST, for which he had an expressed sequence tag, which would be a tag of, oh, 200, 300 base pairs. Mm-hmm. And he had applied for patents on every sequence to which those tags Attached themselves, even though the sequences themselves hadn't been isolated. And the NIH had opposed that patent, and they had opposed it on the ground that he didn't have complete sequence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think, although this is only my own view, I don't have any official story on this, but I think that when Myriad had something that was clearly close to a complete gene, that the NIH decided that this was past the bar that they felt they should oppose.
0: So, In 1994, the sequence of this gene is known. But what was known about the function of the gene at that time, and what have we learned since? Right. Well, when the amino acid sequence was first published in Science, Mm -hmm.
1: I and, of course, everyone else who had been involved in the project compared that sequence to all other amino acid sequences that were then known. Of course, this was not all that many. And we found that there was only one place in BRCA1 where there was any amino acid sequence in any other protein that was a match. And that is what is called the ring finger. And it's a cysteine histidine motif. So I thought, oh, this is fabulous. I will learn about ring fingers and I will know what the function of this protein is. So I looked up the literature on ring fingers, and it turns out that the people who had found the first ring finger in a totally different sort of protein had named it ring for really interesting new gene.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: that didn't tell me a lot. (laughs) Um, What we now know about the function of BRCA1 is that it is one protein in a large complex that together are responsible for the repair of DNA when it is broken. So it plays an absolutely critical role in cell life in the life of every type of tissue.
0: Mm -hmm. In your your article, you actually suggest that now that the gene patent is no longer, well, has been rejected, that everyone should be tested for the BRCA1 gene. But isn't it rare enough that it wouldn't be that useful for most people? In my view, every woman at about the age of 30 or so when she goes to her
1: gynecologist, she be offered genetic sequencing of BRCA1 and BRCA2, regardless of her personal history and regardless of her family history. Of course, the yield will be low. The yield on all screening tests is low, whether they're genetic or otherwise. The idea of a screening test is that it offers to the bearer the opportunity to take an action that is extremely important to their health if they are positive. And BRCA1 and BRCA2 harbor mutations that have exactly that feature. Why shouldn't we just limit this to women who have a family history of breast cancer? Because our experience is that when we identify a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation in a patient, if that patient was not selected on the basis of family history, about half the time they don't have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer and the mutation turns out to have been inherited from the father. He either didn't have a sister or the sister was fortunate and didn't inherit the mutation. In other words, with small families, paternal inheritance, and a condition that is almost entirely found in women. We need to be prepared for the reality that many women will have mutations in these genes in the absence of any family history of the disease. So I would like to see the test offered to every woman, as an adult, not as a child, but to every woman about the time she's finishing up her family Mm -hmm. with the understanding that if she has a loss of function mutation, that is a mutation that clearly abrogates the function of the gene, that she will be advised that it's very wise to have risk-reducing removal of the ovaries and fallopian tubes before the age of about 40.
0: Mm -hmm. What about a mastectomy?
1: So so many women do select. For mastectomy. The Angelina Jolie story is a right. very good case in point. The evidence at present is that removal of the ovaries and fallopian tubes before the age of 40 obviously greatly reduces the risk of ovarian cancer, which is a very high risk also associated with BRCA1 and BRCA2. It also reduces, although does by no means eliminates, the risk of breast cancer. So the national cancer guidelines at present recommend removal of ovaries and fallopian tubes to reduce risk, and they recommend discussion of the possibility of risk-reducing mastectomy. Mm -hmm. I think that will be a highly individual choice. Someone will, will elect it and some will not.
0: Right. What has knowing the sequence and function of these genes brought about in terms of treatment? The use of
1: BRCA1 and its sister genes to identify a pathway that can then be confronted by synthetic lethality has been an enormous step forward in breast cancer treatment. And it goes like this. In the breast cancer cell itself, in the breast epithelium of a woman with a BRCA1 mutation, she has no functioning BRCA1. So all the cells of her body have a mutation in BRCA1, but the epithelial cell that goes on to develop a cancer has a second somatic, that is tissue-specific mutation, that abrogates the second allele. So she now has no functioning BRCA1. That means that in that cell and in its lineage, the cancer lineage that forms from it, the homologous repair pathway, the DNA repair pathway that BRCA1 is part of, is now not working. An immediate consequence of that, which was noticed within a year or so of the identification of BRCA1, is that in women with BRCA1 null breast cancer or ovarian cancer, traditional chemotherapies work better than in other patients because the cells don't repair DNA damage. That's the consequence of chemotherapy. So the cancers were, in fact, being more easily killed, which was, of course, a good thing. But the dramatic creative Second step, which was carried out simultaneously by Holliday in Sweden and several groups in Britain, was to recognize that synthetic lethality could be applied in this case. That is, there is a parallel pathway of repair called the PARP pathway, and mutations in BRCA1 have absolutely nothing, no impact on this pathway at all. But if we treat this patient, with an inhibitor of that PARP pathway, we then inhibit the alternate method of repairing DNA. Now, we, of course, we inhibit that in all of her cells, but her other cells don't care because they have their normal BRCA1 pathway still working because they have the second BRCA1 allele still functioning well. Right. But her cancer, ha ha, her <laughs> cancer has no BRCA1 working properly, so it does not have double-stranded DNA repair by the BRCA Fanconi pathway, and it does not have the PARP pathway working either if we inhibit it. Mm -hmm. So the combination of synthetic lethality that is treating so as to inhibit the PARP repair pathway and then treating with chemotherapy has been a great step forward in the treatment of breast and ovarian cancers due to mutations in BRCA1, BRCA2, and the other genes in this complex. So the clinical work of Alan Ashworth has been extremely valuable here. And these kinds of synthetic lethal compounds are now being used in the clinic.
0: Great. Mary Claire King, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of this.
0: Mary Claire King's perspective appears as part of a special section on breast cancer in this week's issue. You can read her article, more perspectives, news stories, and contributions from science signaling, science translational medicine, and science careers at www.sciencemag.org special slash breast cancer. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk to us about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what exactly dragonflies can smell. Olfaction, the ability to smell things, typically requires three parts— The sensor, out there, exposed to the world, interlocking with chemicals emitted by what have you. The transducer, an organic piece of machinery that converts chemical information into electrical impulse. And lastly, the receiver, the part of the brain that recognizes or reacts to the odor. And for a long time, researchers thought that these were the necessary and sufficient parts to make up a smell pathway. But why do dragonflies seem to say something different, Dave?
2: Because dragonflies don't have, at least the last piece of the hardware, what is known as glomeruli, which are bundles of neurons. They're sensory waystations in animal brains, which pass the signal of the smell. Onto the part of the brain that interprets that smell and says, oh, that's a rose, that's cinnamon, whatever it is. And because dragonflies don't have this, scientists have long assumed that they can't smell.
0: So there's some doubt that the dragonfly can process a smell because of their lack of glomeruli. But do they even have smell sensors?
2: Well, what researchers found in this new study, and they took uh, a few dragonflies apart and scanned them with an electron microscope, which provides very high detailed resolution. And they found these spotted tiny bulbs in pits that resembled olfactory sensilla. And in humans, these are what's important for us detecting smell in the first place
0: but were these cicilla actually passing on that information if they were you know interacting with smells in the air was it getting any further down the line
2: well and that's the big question because it's one thing to detect smell and it's another to really have your brain recognize that you're smelling something your behavior has to change and the researchers study this by putting these dragonflies live dragonflies this time in a wind tunnel they put some fruit flies on the other side of a swab of cotton. So the dragonflies couldn't see the fruit flies, but if they could actually smell, they would detect the fruit flies and buzz over to them. And that's exactly what happened. So the researchers conclude that yes, indeed, dragonflies have a sense of smell.
0: Okay. So is this going to change the way that we think about smelling. Are we going to add a different kind of pathway to our list?
2: Yeah, it really suggests that, you know, these components that we thought were absolutely fundamental for the sense of smell may not be so necessary after all. And some creatures like the dragonfly can make do with a lot less.
0: So next up, we have a story on the last gasps of the mammoths. Mammoths went extinct about 10,000 years ago, although you wouldn't know it because we seem to talk about them all the time. All the time. (laughs) And the questions surrounding their fate are things like... Were they hunted to extinction? Was it the climate? But now there's some evidence inbreeding might have played a role.
2: That's right, Sarah. And this evidence comes from some unusual features on a neck bone that was first found in one mammoth skeleton and has now been found in a few other mammoth skeletons as well. And what it is is this round, flat area on the neck vertebra of mammoths from the North Sea. And you can actually see a picture of this on the site. And what that round flat area means is that the neck bone at one point had a small rib attached to it. And that's a skeletal abnormality that in humans, and this is also seen in humans, seems to go along with a lot of other skeletal abnormalities also associated with things like chromosomal abnormalities and cancer. It really means that some major bad things are going on. And what's really interesting about it is also tends to happen when populations are inbred, where there's problems with pregnancy. For example, a mother maybe not getting enough food or having very stressful conditions. So what the researchers wondered is, is this perhaps a window into why mammoths went extinct?
0: So they have one neck rib out there. How did they go about finding out if there were any other examples?
2: Well, the researchers trawled through some museum specimens of mammoth neck bones that had been dredged up from the North Sea. They found nine, and in three of those nine, they saw the same deformity, which is a really high incidence. For a point of comparison, if you look at modern elephant skeletons, you only see this deformity maybe in one of every 21 individuals.
0: So how does this line up with what we've seen in the genetic data from mammoths of this time?
2: Well, the genetic data had suggested that there was evidence of inbreeding in mammoths about 20,000 years ago. And one reason you could have this inbreeding is if something like climate change, which has also been pegged as a factor in the extinction of the mammoths, perhaps fragmented that mammoth habitat so you didn't have as many good areas to eat. There were areas where it was just a lot harder to live. All of a sudden, you have fewer mammoths living in fewer areas and fewer potential mates. When you have that, you have inbreeding. When you have inbreeding, you have these types of genetic defects, and it leads to what the researchers call an extinction vortex, where you basically have a perfect storm of all this bad stuff going on, which eventually may have doomed the mammoths.
0: So if this mutation was common back then, it doesn't need to actually be the cause of the extinction. The inbreeding doesn't have to be the cause of the extinction. It could be one of the many signs of extinction coming close.
2: Right. It's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario because we don't know whether the inbreeding is actually what caused the extinction or if it was just sort of a symptom of a population that was already in severe decline.
0: Finally, we have a story on the appearance of pigeons. Pigeons. This is my favorite of this week's bunch. We're talking about why city pigeons look the way they do. Apparently, and I did not know this before, urban pigeons, city pigeons, tend to have darker coloration than their country brethren. So Dave, why do we have so many dark feathered friends here in the city?
2: (laughs) Well, if you believe this new study, it has to do with the idea that darker pigeons are better able to get Toxins out of their bloodstream and therefore they're healthier and therefore they have an evolutionary advantage, at least in urban environments, over their lighter colored counterparts.
0: And so why would they think that coloration has anything to do with toxins?
2: Well, what gives pigeons, their dark color, and which gives a lot of animals their dark color, is a pigment called melanin. And what's interesting about melanin is it also binds to metal ions like zinc and lead. And as some people know, zinc and lead are not very good for you. In fact, even in pigeons, pigeons exposed to high levels of these metals lay fewer eggs, and the males have reduced fertility.
0: So we have this relationship between melanin and toxic metals. And so is it possible that more melanin is protecting these darker birds from all the chemicals in diesel exhaust or the cigarette butts that they collect for their nests.
2: And that's what the researchers showed in this study. They took about 100 pigeons and they took them from the suburbs of Paris, which are actually very urban environments. And the reason they're focusing on urban environments is because that's where you're going to see a lot more of this metal pollution. And what they found is after a year of feeding these pigeons healthy food, got them away from their urban environment, the zinc levels in their feathers dropped pretty precipitously. But with the darker colored birds, they were still storing a lot of zinc in their feathers. And that's actually a good thing because it suggests that these birds have a way of keeping zinc out of their bloodstream where it could potentially cause a lot of damage. So it does suggest that darker colored birds, birds with more melanin, are better able to sequester these heavy metals in their body and keep them out of place where they could do harm.
0: So what about the levels that we're talking about here? Was there enough of an improvement or a difference between the two different kinds of birds to actually benefit their health?
2: Well, the researchers didn't actually look at the level of metal in any of the birds' bloodstreams. And that would be the next step to figure out, you know, do the birds with darker coloration actually have less of this metal in their bloodstream? And that would be further evidence that being darker makes them healthier.
0: So are there any other explanations for why dark pigeons flock to a bustling, dirty environments?
2: <laughs> well, there's also some evidence that suggests that darker birds are bolder and more aggressive, which would suggest that maybe it's those traits and not the ability to sort of filter out these dangerous metals that may make them more successful in cities.
0: Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about the true nature of Australia's dingoes, whether they're dogs... Wolves, or maybe something else entirely. Also, a story about how liquid smoke can have health benefits for meat eaters. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about controversial new stream protection rules proposed in the United States. Also, a story about a scientist who is live blogging his lab's attempt to create a new type of stem cells. So, be sure to check out all of these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.